Hey, it's the Weather Channel Podcast. I'm Ari Sarsalari. I'm here with Bob Henson. We're both meteorologists for the Weather Channel. Uh, We're both kind of severe weather specialists, I would say, you know, there are a lot of different types of meteorology and certain meteorologists kind of gravitate toward, you know, certain facets of that. And me and Bob tend to be interested in severe weather. And we want to talk about, you know, what we can do better because we just lost 23 people in one tornado. And there are a lot of people that say, listen, if an EF4 tornado goes through a populated area, people are going to die and there's nothing you can do about it. There are also a lot of people that say, uh, no, we can do better. And I think, um, you know, there are a lot of different ways we can attack this. First of all, Bob, uh, thank you so much for doing this with me. Sure. It's uh, great to be here, Ari. And uh, this is a topic I've cared about ever since I was seven years old and uh, was in my first uh, tornado warning that I was aware of. And, and that really piqued my whole interest in meteorology. So uh, uh, it's a topic dear to my heart. Have you ever been in a tornado? Uh, not literally in a tornado, but I've seen quite a few through uh, research projects uh, at Oklahoma, University of Oklahoma, and um, uh, in other contexts. And um, so I've seen quite a few, but I've never had the terror of actually being in one. And I, I'm, I'm grateful for that. Let's see. Lee County, Alabama had a big tornado roll through, um, you know, a lot of EF3 damage, some EF4 damage. It was actually on the ground for a really long time. I can't remember what the exact number was, but it went all the way over into Georgia. 60 plus miles, right? Or was it yep. 70 plus? And on the ground for a little more than an hour. So, uh, yeah, and a path length uh, or path width on the order of a mile. So we had 23 people that died in this city, uh, Beauregard. And, you know, I just want to know what your perspective is on whether there is anything we can do to improve the situation. Because, I mean, really, look, at the end of the day, there were a lot of people who lived in mobile homes and they were in their mobile yeah. homes and an EF4 tornado came through. There were also people that died in regular homes as well, you know, just to be clear here. But, you know, where do you attack this? Do we attack it from the meteorology side? Do we attack it from the um, trying to make more shelters and all that kind of stuff? Just uh, what do you think? It's a great question, Ari. You know, uh, with any threat society faces, you know, there's there's questions of where to put resources. I mean, we, you know, we have thousands of people that die every year from various kinds of health maladies. And, you know, we're always looking at, well, where to put the energy and the focus? Uh, you know, where can we make progress in, in healing different things? Where can we help people to, to live healthy lifestyles? And uh, those questions pop up in all different kinds of settings. And so with tornadoes, I think uh, the questions are, well, how can we help structures to be more tornado resilient? Uh, how can we improve the lead time of warnings? Uh, and how can we get people to safe places? And, and I think there's some sweet spots all around in, in that area. I don't think we're ever going to have a time when there are no tornado fatalities, but uh, we have made good progress, I'd say, in the last decade. And, and part of this is weather luck. But uh, since 2011, uh, tornado deaths have gone down every single year except for one. And uh, 2018 was the lowest death toll on record. It was only 10 people. So uh, I would love to see that number uh, be more persistent, you know, and unfortunately, uh, uh, we've broken that streak now, but um, uh, I do think there are some areas where we can make some progress. Well, I'll tell you what, um, in North Alabama, I used to work in Huntsville, and uh, yeah, 2011, obviously, that was a massive tornado event. Literally, the, the thing when I moved to Huntsville, and I moved there in 2012, was every single person I met was somehow directly affected by that day. You know, there was mm, nobody wow. that was just like, oh, the tornado missed me. It wasn't a big deal for me. It was it was like, oh, you know, my my cousin died or my, you know, there were there were so many different ways that people were affected by that. So it became something that they 
they really kind of attacked over the next couple of years. And I remember in my time there, uh, they were building a lot of storm shelters. It was a big, very, very hot business as well. The storm shelter business, commercials all over the place. A lot of people were putting them in at their personal residences. A lot of schools were putting them in. Um, what do you think the role of those is? I mean, what, what do you think is like feasible to introduce it into the, you know, more widespread public? Well, I think Alabama is an excellent, uh, uh, place to, to study this question. You know, it's really like a microcosm of the nation in a way. And differences across Alabama kind of reflect differences around the country. And I wasn't really as aware of this uh, until I just talked and, and sat down with Daphne Ledoux. Uh, she's a senior research scientist at, uh, no, or at CAPS rather, which is a, uh, part of the University of Oklahoma, a research center. So she's been involved in the last few years with a project called Vortex Southeast. I think you probably heard of. It's a spinoff from the Vortex projects of the 1990s into the 00s over the Great Plains uh, that got tons of uh, mobile radars and so forth. Uh, so Vortex Southeast is really zoomed in on the Southeast and uh, in particular because that's where the greatest um, uh, tornado uh, risk and mortality is. It's um, Even though there's a lot of tornadoes in the Great Plains, it's the southeast where people are most likely to die in tornadoes uh, for a variety of reasons. You know, the time of day they occur, uh, the visibility because of, of trees and such is lower, uh, but also uh, where people live. So I was really struck in talking to Daphne at how there's a difference between North and South Alabama. And, and you just pointed out in 2011 that the uh, outbreak then had a huge impact on, on you know, how people prepare and such. Um, but I didn't realize the contrast between there and South Alabama. And part of that's because Southern Alabama doesn't tend to get as many big tornadoes. And uh, Lee County uh, had not had nearly as many bad ones as, say, the Huntsville area. So they didn't have the prevalence of shelters in South Alabama that you had in the north. So so that's one big thing. And I think those community shelters um, uh, can be a real a real boon. You know, I guess uh, the big ones, they're, they're like Quonset huts, but they can hold up to 100 people. And uh, there are even counties in Alabama now that are that have websites where you can go to see is this shelter or that shelter open for this particular severe weather day. So uh, I think that is kind of a wave of the future in this part of the country. Yeah, I think that's a really important thing that we have to explore. And, you know, I just want to also ask you, you know, do you do you think that we did our job, meaning the whole weather enterprise, you know, was there anything that we could have done better um, in maybe sounding the alarm earlier or did, was it impossible to know that there was this kind of possibility earlier? Um, trying to think what else. I mean, gosh, you think back, Storm Prediction Center did an amazing job. They were putting out mesoscale discussions that were the size of like two counties and they were nailing it. And I, I had honestly never seen that before. Um, yeah. I, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. They, they there was a real drill down, you know, four days ahead of time, uh, uh, SPC um, outlooked the area that, for the possibility of severe weather. And then um, about 24 hours ahead of time, they said there was a chance of strong tornadoes and really zeroed in on that corridor that went across uh, South Alabama, uh, Florida, Panhandle, Southeast Georgia. So, so there's 24 hours warning of the potential for strong tornadoes. Uh, and that continued to be ramped up the next day. And then uh, tornado watches went out. And then, yeah, as you, as you mentioned about an hour before the Lee County tornado, there was a special product called a mesoscale convective discussion. It's really not aimed at the general public, more to emergency managers, but it outlined that very spot and said we could have strong tornadoes in this one or two county areas. So, uh, the meteorology is getting, getting more and more fine scale, especially in that window of, uh, 
say, 24 hours to a couple hours beforehand. You know, there are... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, go, go ahead. I was going to say, there are some events like 2011, you know, where you can tell three or four days in advance that this is going to be kind of a really big deal with, you know, possibility of a lot of strong tornadoes. But with this one... You know, I was talking to a lot of my friends who are meteorologists about that, including Josh Johnson, one of the guys who was covering it live down at WSFA. He's the chief meteorologist there. And I was just asking him, I was like, were you satisfied with the way that you covered this? I mean, obviously his live coverage was outstanding. It's been getting accolades all over the place over the last week or so and well-deserved because it was the absolute textbook. Anybody who's going into broadcasting... That's going to be covering severe weather. You have to go watch it. Josh Johnson, just YouTube it and you'll find the coverage. But, you know, I asked him, do you think you could have done anything better? And he said, you know, I wish it would have sounded the alarm a little earlier. Maybe bang the drum, I think is the terminology he used a little earlier. But when you looked at it, you know, what were the factors? I mean, uh, basically just yeah, the low strengthened yeah. a little faster than it was forecast to. And yeah, go ahead. Yeah. You hit on something that's, I think, really important. Um, we've We've made such progress in identifying those really big outbreaks, right? Uh, the, the particularly dangerous situation watches, the high-risk days. Uh, but what's happened, and, and Daphne Ledoux pointed this out, is, is um, SBC is, is telling people, here's with high-risk days and SBC and uh, particularly dangerous days, these are the areas where uh, severe weather coverage will be widespread, right? And you could have uh, tornadoes over a large area. But what people really want to know is, is my town going to get a bad tornado? And get, may, going from that more broad uh, or high-risk area to that local high-risk, that's the challenge. This is one of those days where the severe weather was not super, super widespread, the worst of it. Uh, but where it was bad, it was really bad. Yeah, and that's kind of the just the tough thing about forecasting severe weather. You know, when you're three, four days out, the storm is usually still out to sea, you know. And yeah. uh, the forecast models don't have very much uh, detail in them. The resolution is pretty low. You can't get that high res stuff that can really lock in on some of the very important details right before it happens. But yeah, I think, and, and, yeah, yeah but ahead. people need to know that, that just because it's not a high risk doesn't mean you can't get a bad tornado. Yeah. I think, you know, even me as a meteorologist that's been doing this for years and covering a lot of severe weather, you know, y your mind just kind of goes to it. When you see a moderate or a high risk, you, you just start thinking about tornadoes. And there are plenty of days where they will issue a moderate uh, risk mm -hmm. where it's mainly because they think that there's going to be a massive squall line that's going to, you know, produce a lot of straight line wind damage and that the tornado threat isn't all that high. So there's a lot of stuff within those storm prediction center things that I, I think are really kind of meant more for the you know, EMA and meteorologists really more than anybody, I would say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The main thing I think for the public is to know when tornadoes are possible and to have some kind of heads up that this might be a bad day and then to know what to do uh, if you get a bulletin, uh, say an hour or two ahead of time that, okay, there's the chance of tornadic storms. And this is where I think new products may come down the line eventually you know, um, NOAA is exploring this uh, worn-on forecast uh, technology and approach where basically they can outline these these areas an hour or two ahead of time. I think what's going to be a challenge is figuring out how these can be local products, right? You know, we've had the watch warning system for 60 years. And um, even the convective outlooks, you know, a slight moderate high, those have been around for 30 or 40 years. It, it's always easier to add a new nuance to those products than to come up with a fresh one. Uh, think about how we went from slight moderate high to marginal slight enhanced moderate high. 
Uh, that's not such, and yeah. even that took some time and effort. <laughs> it did. It took it. It took some time on my part. I still get confused when I see an enhanced risk. I'm like, wait, what does that mean again? Yeah. Um, but you know, uh, let's talk about watches and warnings a little bit. Okay, I think the watch. I think watches are fine. I have no problems with watches. I think obviously the warnings were very good. I think with this storm. You know, and I, just to be clear, I'm not one of these guys that just because I'm a meteorologist, I'm going to go back and say, oh, all the meteorologists did everything perfect. I just say, I think in this situation, really looking back on it pretty logically, I think overall it was pretty well covered by the weather enterprise. Now, it's just we're in 2019 right now, and I, I remember having the same conversation. Everybody was having it, you know, whenever we switched to the polygon warnings, and I can't remember how long ago that was, right? How long ago was that? Um, a few years ago, and, and of course, people still hear counties when they hear warnings on the radio or whatever, but right. you're right, the polygons are, are what the official warnings are now, these little areas that overlap counties and aren't exactly the same as the counties. I, I think it's really, there. I, I know we always go back to this, but I think it's, I think warning fatigue obviously plays a big part in it, and I know there have been improvements, the science isn't perfect, you know, it's not like I'm blaming things on the weather service here because a lot of tornado warnings end up as false alarms or whatever. But, mm. you know, it's just it's a very tough thing to try to figure out how to combat because the technology, I feel like, needs to be better. I think we need to get to a point where, you know, everybody's got phones now. Everybody's got GPS walking around. You know, why can't we notify think, people yeah. in polygons? I think that phones are the critical element. You know, smartphones have just leapt into the landscape, especially over the last 10 years or so, you know. And even the worn-on process was started about 10 years ago. And, and I think at that point we saw that, you know, cell phones were becoming more prevalent, but I don't think we quite anticipated how sophisticated they, they were going to become and how ubiquitous they're going to become. I mean, uh, there are folks who probably don't have air conditioning in the South who have cell phones, right? Um, it's just part of life. And by the same token, many people are, are you know, uh, cutting the cable or whatever, so they may not have cable television. But well, you've got a lot of people that don't have cable television that have cut the cord that have phones. And there are many apps, such as the Weather Channel app, and I'm uh, honestly, I mean, it really is a very good app for just getting warnings. You know, you can turn on the warnings, and if you're inside a polygon, you'll, you know, get the warning. That's basically how it works. Um, but mm -hmm. when you have a weather radio, yes, it's good to have that, and you will get the notification, but it, you know, a lot of that stuff, it's still county based. So what am I trying to say? I'm trying to yeah, say here, you I, can, you, you can have a tornado yeah. warning polygon that is about, you know, covering 75% of one County and then just a sliver of another County, but everybody in that yeah. County that's not being affected really that much is going to get the warning. Yep. And even the polygons, um, only a small fraction of the people within a polygon are going to be hit by a tornado, Great point. You know, even for the worst ones. Um, Definitely did an analysis of the more uh, EF5 tornado, which was the, the the last tornado that killed as many people as this one, and that was May 20th of 2013. And uh, she found that only about three percent of the polygon was hit by the tornado. You know, even though this was a tornado that was a mile wide and uh, had a 14 mile long track, you know, so most people in that polygon did not get a direct hit from that tornado. And I think on an intuitive level, people realize that even when you're in a warning. Um, chances are you're not going to be hit by that tornado. But uh, because we can't drill down super precisely, people still have to take that warning as if they are going to be hit. And I think there's the, there's the false alarm challenge. I think on some level, uh, there's some differences in what people think is a false alarm. You know, it's a false alarm when you get a warning and it was a legitimate warning, but it just didn't manifest. Or do people think false alarms are, you know, 
inaccurate science. Uh, you know, there, there's actually a study recently on that, and there's some researchers looking at at what is a false alarm and how do people interpret it, and does it affect how people respond? Right? You know, maybe people know there's false alarms, but they're still going to act because they take tornadoes seriously. Yeah, I think, I, you know, I do know people that act that way. You know what I mean? They say, hey, look, I know this. there's a much better chance of this being a false alarm, but I'm still going to go get in my shelter. But I also think you just have a lot of people that it's just, you know, tornado warning after tornado warning. Once again here, I'm not sure. dogging on the weather service. It's just that oh, this is where the technology is. Like they issue the correct warnings. They issue good warnings the vast majority of the time. Well, yeah. I mean, we could we could we could have a system where we wait to only issue tornado warnings if we know there's a tornado on the ground, right? Right. So the false alarm rate would be lower, but uh, <laughs> we would also miss those tornadoes that develop quickly that radar would spot. I'll and tell so, you what else. Now that I start to think about it, that I really think would help is um, I, I know some of the Gibson Ridge products have this already, where there's actually a distinction between the uh, radar-based tornado warning and the tornado reported. Uh, tornado warning. I think we need to somehow integrate that into just the general public, you know, because we got yellow for severe thunderstorm yeah. warning, you got red for tornado warning, and then when there's a, whether it's radar based or we know that there's a big tornado on the ground coming for you, it says the same thing on your phone, and you could just think, oh, it's another one of these things. You know what I mean? Yeah, boy, that's, uh, there are some appealing aspects to that. I think one challenge is that the very, very worst tornadoes are often spotted by radar well ahead of time, and with a high confidence that it's going to develop. So you want to have a separate category for those. That's a very good point. But yeah, and then obviously you have tornado emergencies too. You know, like that. that is a very distinct category that I think gets across to the public. But there really is, I I, I still think it would kind of go a long way. You know, if somebody sees on their phone, they say tornado reported. We know there's a tornado on the ground or some kind of language like that rather than radar has detected a storm capable of producing a tornado. I think people have heard that so many times that it's just kind of like, okay, so what, you know? Yeah, yeah. um, Gosh, every situation is different, but I I, I do think there that's the kind of thing worth looking at. And I'm glad that there are now social scientists that work with the weather service to test this kind of stuff. And uh, tests are limited, obviously, because they're not in a real-time environment. But uh, man, it's so important to just ask people, you know, what does this mean to you? And, and how would you respond if you heard this? And I think there's such value in that. Let's talk about some more things that we think could improve. Obviously, on the weather side, this is actually what I like about working in this business is that it's always... There, there's always room to improve. You know what I mean? Like we're never going to know everything about the weather, I feel like. But the technology keeps getting better. I mean, you look at the what, what warnings are compared to what they were 15, 20 years ago, probably a lot better. Like what types of technology could help this out? I've always been a big proponent of, I thought they should have put more radar sites in before we went dual pole. I'm trying to figure out a way to explain this to people, but basically they yeah. they uh, upgraded all the existing radar sites to do a lot cooler stuff that is also very useful, by the way, extremely useful. But mm-hmm. if you have more radar sites, you can see lower into the storms and then you'll have a better chance at seeing the tornadic circulations. What do you think? Well, for certainly for monitoring and, and catching the tornado genesis process, yeah, the more radars, the better. Uh, I do think there's, you know, radars are expensive, so that that would be a maybe a tough. Sell, oh yeah, but, there's that. I forgot. <laughs> but so, however, uh, one promising thing that's being done uh, this this spring actually is the Vortex Southeast project uh, has a Meso eighteen nineteen experiment, 
where they're actually doubling the number of, of weather balloons or radio sounds that are being launched uh, all the way from Oklahoma City, Norman, south and eastward. So uh, this is providing twice the amount of information on the upper atmosphere. The extra soundings can make a big difference and uh, improve satellites. You know, we have the, the GO-16, GO-17, and uh, that series of satellites is, is providing, you know, incredibly detailed visualizations of, or actually imagery of, you know, the thunderstorms developing. I'm sure you saw some of the loops of, you know, these bubbling supercells on uh, with the March 3rd outbreak and uh, just the amount of clarity now that we have with, with that. And some of that information uh, will be folded into the models. And this is a real area of progress. You know, um, the U.S. has been a little behind in some ways, I think, compared to, say, the European Center in data assimilation. And this is getting the information from satellites, even from radars, into the models. So I think we're, we're uh, on the brink of making really good headway in that department. What do you think is more important to improve on our side in the weather enterprise? Should we put more resources into improving forecasting or put more resources into improving the now casting? Well, you know, I think in some ways I would lean a little toward now casting, if only because uh, we have a pretty good sense of the big outbreak several days ahead of time. And I'd say within a day or so, we have now have the short range models um, within 12 to 24 hours that are, are giving us a lot of, of good information. You know, not only that there, there will be severe weather, but is it going to be squalline? Is it going to be isolated supercells? So we're continuing to make good headway. And I'd, I'd like to see that continue. Uh, I think, it, you know, within that, that window of maybe an hour to two hours, uh, where a lot of energy is now being focused, I think that that could be a sweet spot. And I, I, I'm looking forward to seeing how that intersects with the product development and, you know, how will that translate into images and texts that can go out over, over phones in particular? Uh, you know, we, we still really don't know, do people respond best to words or pictures uh, or commands, you know, uh, in that, in that time frame? And then what happens if you know an hour or two hours ahead of time, are you going to go to a shelter? Or are you just going to kick back because you think, oh, I've got some time to waste, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. And, you know, that's another thing that had been discussed for, you know, particularly vulnerable buildings like, say, uh, uh, mobile homes. Having a place nearby that is specifically made for a storm shelter where, you know, if a tornado watch goes up, so at least it's only a couple of hours, it's not like, you know, there's going to be severe weather Saturday and then you just have to go there all of Saturday if you want to be safe, you know, you uh, yeah. I don't know. There are options, but um, I do. I want to. I want to talk about mobile homes a little bit more. We were going through. I know we were kind of emailing back and forth before we did this podcast. Um, I printed all this stuff out, so you probably hear some papers rustling on the podcast. But there's this man that I. I have to be honest. I have not. I'm not familiar with him, but he had a great uh, Twitter thread about you know just uh, how structural integrity of things and tornadoes kind of intertwine. Maybe you can um, go into that a little bit. Yeah, a couple of folks that I, I ran across on, on Twitter and uh, through folks like Daphne Ledoux. Uh, one of them is Steve Schrader at Villanova University, and he has been doing some really fine-scale analysis, um, looking at literally um, where individual mobile homes are located. And this is an important point. Uh, folks who don't live in, 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 say, the central U.S. might think of mobile homes as always being clustered in, in mobile home parks. But in fact, uh, especially in the southeast, uh, they're more often... Uh, located on acreages. So people live in rural areas and, and have, have a mobile home. Uh, maybe you go another mile or two and there's another one. And the, the uh, Lee County tornado, uh, the disastrous one, moved over a lot of those homes. In fact, uh, 33% of all the homes in the path of that tornado were mobile homes. 
And that compares to, say, in Alabama, about 15% of all homes are mobile homes. So this disproportionately affected mobile homes. And the fatality rate, unfortunately, in this tornado uh, per housing unit was about double what it was, say, in the Joplin tornado of 2013, you know, the worst one uh, in the last few decades. So, How do you come up with that, the, um, the fatality rate per, uh, per housing unit, did you I, say? I, yes, he basically did uh, GIS analysis of all the, the number of, of residences, whether they be apartments, uh, uh, manufactured homes, uh, uh, fixed homes, and he compared that to the path of the tornado. And he did this, uh, he's done this for, I think, for several tornadoes, but he did this for Joplin and then also for the Lee County tornado um, and found about 4.4 fatalities per 100 homes in the Lee County tornado. And um, if this were the case in Joplin, then, then the death toll would have been 300 instead of a, about 150. So, uh, you know, the um, it, it's simply mobile homes are very vulnerable in tornadoes. Now, there are ways to make them slightly less vulnerable to the weakest tornadoes or if you're on the fringe of a really strong tornado. And I think uh, it was really important for for uh, manufacturers and mobile home um, uh, sales places and people to to insist on these these uh, inexpensive improvements. You know, making sure that their uh, the mobile home is lashed to the foundation correctly, that there are anchor bolts and uh, hurricane ties and things like that to help keep the structure as sound as possible. Now, we're not talking about you know EF three or EF four winds because those are going to yeah that's um, not going to make a much, difference in yeah, that. That's not going to make much difference there. But at EF one and EF two and uh, most of most of the uh, damage for or rather most most of the time if a tornado hits a mobile home it's going to be one of the weaker uh tornadoes well the vast majority of tornadoes are you know ef0 ef1s and yeah. you know you got to think about it in this context also it's very rare you have a very low chance in general of getting hit by like an ef4 tornado just you know being alive being a human being that lives in the united states even if you live in tornado alley you know overall yeah, I'm sure it's not as small of a chance as getting hit by lightning, but it's, you know, it's like the idea of, I don't know, getting into a car, you know, you always have the chance of getting into an accident. EF4 tornadoes, I mean, they don't happen that often. It's very, it, there are not many people that are affected by them. Well, I shouldn't, that that came out completely wrong. Oh, um, I know what you meant. <laughs> you know what I meant. Okay, but I mean, the point is, like, uh, relatively speaking, the vast majority of tornadoes are EF0, EF1s. And if you can find a way to make mobile homes a little bit more structurally sound for those tornadoes, I think that would actually go a long way in improving just how, you know, those those numbers go. Yeah, but the idea is certainly not to encourage people to stay in a, a mobile manufactured home in a tornado. You know, it's more like if they're caught there or, you know, even if they're not there, uh, you know, re reducing the amount of, of destruction at the mobile home well if, if nothing else it'll reduce the amount of debris going downstream to maybe affect something else yeah but what do you do though you know i'm trying to put myself in the in the shoes of somebody who you know just happens to live in a mobile home and you got a whole family there and yeah. you know you've heard that there's going to be severe weather on this day what do you do every time there's a chance for severe weather you got to pack up your family and you know head yeah. either go to a hotel <laughs> or go to you know your cousin's house and in, in in somewhere else i mean I'm yeah. I'm trying to see things yeah. from their perspective. I think oh, yeah. you know one thing I was talking to Josh Johnson about because you know obviously he he uh, lives down in that part of the country. Um, mm -hmm. He knows this area very well. He just told me straight up. He's like, dude, there are a lot of mobile homes down here, 
mm-hmm. these Yankees will always go on TV and they say, well, why would you choose to live in a mobile home? And Josh says, well, it's not like they're choosing whether to live in a mobile home or a $300,000 house. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Right. It's situational. So it's, it's yeah. just the way the way life is for many people. And there are plenty of awfully nice mobile homes out there. Oh, yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, they can be they can be really excellent housing options. I mean, and even mobile home parks can be uh, fabulous uh, uh, places in terms of community community ties, where uh, lots of people have been there a long time, and you have uh, strong social ties. So there's a lot of pluses to to mobile manufactured homes. It's just not in terms of tornadoes, you know. Right. So well, how do you look at it? Do you look at it as kind of like okay, look, this is just one of the risks. What what would you do? Say you and your family lived in a mobile home. I know you're a meteorologist. Try to separate yourself from that a little bit, if possible. Well, you- I've had a family member in in a mobile home. In fact, in there fact, in a mobile home that was literally in the path of the May third, nineteen ninety nine tornado that oh, hit my Oklahoma goodness. City, and uh, they went to a school shelter. And the tornado actually arced just before it would have destroyed their home. So, uh, what yeah. was the timeline? Um, just maybe explain what their day was like that day. I believe uh, their kids were getting home from school and um, one of them was at work. And so there was some simply communicating with stuff. And this was uh, before cell phones were were widespread. So uh, I think that uh, I think uh, the mom and the kids had gone to a shelter and dad was on his way home or something. And then he went to the shelter, if I remember correctly. So uh, anyway, it all worked out okay for them and personally, but uh, it was a really eye-opening window for me as to those the, the decision-making processes. And, you know, we have busy lives and uh, a couple of different people in a family might work at different places. Maybe you have an aging parent, you know, five miles away. Your kids are at school three miles away. Uh, you know, I, it, I, I have tremendous sympathy for folks trying to negotiate all this in any kind of housing environment, much less if you're in a manufactured home and you, you know you need to get out of there. I'm I'm trying to think about the idea of having a storm shelter in every you know uh, mobile home community. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, oh, there should there should be absolutely. Do you <laughs> think it's feasible, yeah. Bob? I mean, I I do. The, when I think about it, you know, generally I'm not the kind of guy that likes you know the government coming in and making regulations. But I mean, mm-hmm. you know, this seems like the type of thing that it could maybe be affordable if it's done the right way. I mean, I'm just thinking super primitively here. I'm not saying sure. we have to get. And there to, are, yeah, go ahead. I believe in Minnesota, they're mandated in newer mobile home communities. I believe, at least in one or two states, uh, not in very many. And uh, you know, there 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 can be challenges in maintaining a, a shelter, whether it be below ground or, or the newer above ground ones. You know, uh, they can get moldy. You know, mold and mildew. Um, you know, you've you've got to. Uh, make sure they're not a source of liability if, if you're the one who's who's hosting the shelter. Uh, I think there's a growing trend now toward dual-use shelters where uh, a building can be built to withstand an a 5 tornado, but it can also be used you know, as a gym or something like that. And I think that has a lot of promise because then you're automatically going to be maintaining that, that structure. Uh, so I think there's, there's actually real potential and Obviously, it's going to cost something, and because it's going to cost something, it may not happen until uh, state or local or national governments mandate it, but I do absolutely think mobile home communities ought to have shelters. I, I think it's more challenging in places like rural Alabama, but you know they're making progress there too, uh, these Quonset Hut-type shelters above ground, and uh, they cost, I think, on the order of $100,000. They hold about 100 people, so you're talking of an investment of about $1,000 a person, right? So sure. Personally, I think a human life is worth that much. 
Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you think about these, um, you know, a lot of people are just buying, you know, the very expensive storm shelters for their own personal home sometimes, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. Those things are, I don't even know what they cost, what, 5 to 10K sometimes, like if you're getting one yeah, of those. Yeah, like safe rooms and such. I think that, yeah, it's on, it's on that order. So the, this is certainly more affordable than that. And um, I, I, it's it was uh, exciting to hear that this is being done in in in, in Alabama. Now, one one analysis already found that uh, these shelters are typically uh, about a maybe ten or fifteen minute drive if you're in northern Alabama, where they have more of them because of the 2011 tornado. Whereas in southern Alabama, you're more like thirty minutes away from the nearest one, and that's really pushing the envelope on whether you can get there in time. So you've got to have enough of them so that they're close enough to enough people so they can get there. What else, Bob? What else can we do? I mean, how how do you look at that last event, the Lee County, Alabama event? Do you think that there is anything that could have been done differently to have possibly saved lives? And I'm talking both on the meteorologist end and also on the end of, uh, you know, the people who experience tragedy, uh, you know, just basically yeah. anywhere. I think it's a classic example of, of a risk that was kind of a moderate, and I don't mean strictly speaking an SPC moderate risk. I mean sort of a, a mid-level risk that ramped up to a high-level risk uh, within an hour or two of the event. And so those are the tough ones because they can be really localized and people may think, oh yeah, it's yet another day with, with tornadoes. And they may not really realize that things have ramped up to that higher level. So it needs to be a way to really hammer home that. And I think that was largely done by the local broadcasters and EMs and so forth. So I think that message got across. Unfortunately, it, it just hit an area with a, a dense population of uh, mobile manufactured homes. that, And some of them may have been older than since 1970s, which is when um, HUD standards were put in place to improve the construction. So they might have been especially weak mobile homes. Uh, we don't know that. I don't know that. But regardless... Um, uh, when a large tornado, a long-lived tornado, hits a densely uh, populated area like this, a rural area, uh, it's going to be hard to avoid some fatalities. I think um, perhaps uh, this was um, a best case of a, of a bad situation. I don't know. But uh, I think it's certainly a wake-up call. You know, we'd gone six years without this bad a tornado yes. in terms of fatalities. So and a lot, lots happened in six years. You know, think about how social media has just proliferated in those six years. There's been an exponential amount of increase of things like, you know, everybody's got a phone, so you're just taking pictures of everything. I mean, if there's a tornado in progress and anybody lives anywhere near it, there's going to be a picture of it on social media somewhere. As a meteorologist, as somebody who yeah. covers this stuff, that's a, I like that. That's a good thing because then I can show people the picture, you know? I can say, oh, yeah, look at what, this. What I, what I don't know is how quickly things are aging off, you know? Say tweets go out, a tornado's coming. Well, are people hitting that tweet like five minutes after the threat? And yeah. How much of that residual kind of you know, panic or fear is being propagated, you know. I think that's a bigger, I think that's a bigger issue on Facebook for sure, because, you know, I see it all the time. There'll be like, hey, careful, careful, everybody. We have a severe weather outbreak coming today. And it was just a post that got a lot of hits from a couple of days ago. So the algorithm kind of put it at the top of your feed. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yep, with, I know with, what you mean. With so Twitter. Clears, yeah. yeah with, with Twitter, I feel like, you know, when you have something that is clearly a pretty big event, it, it just goes like, like wildfire it spreads like wildfire all over twitter and it's hard to go through a twitter feed and not find uh immediate information about it i mean i'm not gonna lie for me 
when I hear about anything, somebody claims mm-hmm. that somebody died or you know, a celebrity died or something like that, I, I always, Twitter is the first thing I go to because you'll see it within the first couple seconds, you know? It's it's literally yep. just the news yep. source now, I feel and, like. And there is a certain self-correcting mechanism to Twitter that's not quite there on Facebook, I think, uh, just from my own experience, at least. Yeah. Um, it can be a little easier because on Twitter, you can look at, at the provenance of the person and see exactly who this is and exactly when they tweeted it. And um, other folks can chime in. And uh, if, if something's not true, it can get batted down pretty quickly. So, um, I, yeah, I go to Twitter, certainly, especially in the first few minutes after a, it appears there's been a bad tornado. It's a good way to get a first take on, on what happened. Uh, I am noticing one thing. I'm curious about your take on it, Ari. Okay. I, I'm seeing the word destroyed used, I think, differently than it was a few years ago. I, I always used to think of destroyed as obliterated, right? You know, right. There's nothing left on the ground. And now you'll see this church was destroyed and maybe one wall is partially caved in. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know. I guess I kind of have mixed feelings on that because I'm a big proponent of just if it looks like or if it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. You know what I mean? Um, there are many cases where, you know, for instance, with the technical definition of a blizzard, you know, it has to be a quarter mile visibility and 35 mile an hour winds for three hours straight. But yeah. then you see video from North Dakota, and they're gusting only up to 30 miles an hour for those three hours straight. It's a blizzard. It's a blizzard. You know what I mean? Sure. Sure. Anybody knows that. And so I think yeah. I think there's a lot of people who are just kind of passing by these buildings, and it, it's it's crazy to see. Like I said before, I mean, when you haven't seen tornado damage before, you see that, you're like, oh, my God, that, that house is destroyed. It's crazy. Sure. And for, for I, people like I us who are— I guess what I hope— Yeah, go yeah. ahead. Oh, just what I hope is that when people see on Twitter or wherever uh, the town of Beauregard has been destroyed, oh, yes. they realize this might mean that basically uh, the majority of houses have a fair amount of damage. No, and were, that's also what I was going to say, too. So uh, the stuff I just talked about, that's kind of one side of it. And then the other side of it, yeah. this is the day and age of overhype on everything. You know what I mean? And uh, whatever yeah. word can get your tweet the most retweets and you want to get the most attention, everybody kind of wants attention. That's kind of part of the age we live in. So yeah, I think sometimes these words do get overused. I, t- I actually do agree with that. But man, I just, I still, I was talking to Danielle, Danielle Banks. She was uh, reporting live down there. I, I think the most significant tornado damage I've seen in person uh, shortly after it happened, which was about 12 hours after it happened, it was it was an EF3 in Miggs County, Ohio in 2010. It's been mm-hmm. that long since I've since I've seen that in person and um you know just start, certain things stick out in your head. For me it was a yeah. uh uh the base of a trailer or the foundation of a trailer that was wrapped around a tree. That was an EF3. There was also a uh guardrail uh on the from the side of the road that had been wrapped around a tree. And you know, those things look like they're pretty thin. So I went up to it and I kind of grabbed it because I wanted to see if I could move. And I couldn't, I couldn't with all my strength, I couldn't take it off. And I was like, wow, Wow. that's something else. I I have a a much more uh, kind of ethereal experience uh, from the April 26, 1991 tornado that hit uh, Andover near Wichita, Kansas, killed a number of people. I was uh, there shortly after that tornado hit and I remember looking up at the sky and it looked like it was raining pink. And in a couple of moments, I realized that these were little pink uh, shreds of insulation for mobile homes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And you could look up and just see dozens of them. Uh, that was just so compelling and just 
just heartrending when you think about what happened at that at that uh, I, home park. I remember that on April 27th also. I, I think it was maybe... Or 20, 27th, yeah. I think I said 26th. Thank you for catching... Or no, April 27th were, of... Uh, you were talking 20, about Andover, 91, right? Yes. Yeah, Andover, I think was the 26th. Yeah, I was talking about uh, 2011. I remember seeing reporters in Birmingham that were seeing stuff falling out of the sky from the tornadoes that were, uh, you know, much farther off toward the north and west. So anyway, um, do you think we've covered this all, Bob? Is there? I'm, I'm, I'm honestly trying to rack my brain here because I mean, this is something. It's one of those things that kind of keeps you. It keeps you up at night a little bit as a meteorologist. You're just like, gosh, you, you'll just sit there in bed, just like thinking about this stuff. What can we do? There has to be something. Okay, sure. this can improve. That can improve. But how? How would we? How would this be feasible? You know, like what? What else is yeah. there? I think the good news is, and the good thing is that uh, there a lot of these improvements are out there. You know. Um, uh, warning information is out there. Um, ways to make mobile homes a little less prone to to tip over at any wind speed. Those are out there. Um, ways to keep roofs from falling off houses or, or to minimize that. They're all out there. Uh, to a large extent, uh, it's partially uh, uh, dotting the I's and crossing the T's. You know, making sure that these things we know about are implemented uh, as widely as possible. So uh, I, and I, I think. Uh, uh, it, it's it's not sexy work. It's it's just a matter of getting in there, getting those shelters, getting those, um, you know, hurricane ties in place, and um, uh, making sure. You know, and, and broadcasters do a phenomenal job of just getting those messages out there and reiterating safety messages and timeframes of storms and so forth. You know, it all it all makes a difference. And I think it's easy uh, for those of us in the community of of weather to be down on ourselves sometimes and feel like, oh, what should we have done better? And I think we can always improve, but, you know, take pride in the fact that more people didn't die. I think that's that's one plus. I would agree with that. If, if I could take one thing out of the conversation and uh, maybe just offer the one thing that I think would help the most, I, I really think that if people could get on their phones a notification and so that they know when there is actually a confirmed tornado... If, if only there were a way to do that. I, I know, I know, I know. But at least if you're in the polygon and you can yeah. and you can tell that it's a confirmed tornado rather than a a yes. radar based warning, I really do think that yeah. people would take it a lot more seriously. Yeah, if I was being facetious, of course. But in fact, yes, the Weather Channel has a wonderful app. For, uh, oh, I see what you're saying. I thought yes. you were making fun of me because tornadoes are so small. And there's no way that you could actually, actually warn everybody. Yeah, so uh, so absolutely, that's a great option for people. And as well, there's uh, the if you have newer phones, you're you're going to discover you have something called the wireless emergency alert system, which is more narrowly focused than the Weather Channel app and other apps. Uh, it's just for those most dire things, uh, including nuclear attack. <laughs> so, right. And you know, look, we're talking about the Weather Channel app here. Okay, so we're talking about that. But I'm I'm also going to say, listen. You know, not everybody has TV, but if you have a TV, I'm watching my local meteorologist if there's a tornado coming at my house, you know, find the local TV and see what they're talking about on there because they they know the area very well. Yeah, Um, and here's one area of potential progress. There was a bill introduced and actually passed in the Senate um, called the Ready Act, and it was triggered by this um, uh, nuclear scare in Hawaii a little over a year ago, you may remember. uh, I do. Got that message that turned out to be a, a test. But uh, anyway, Brian Schatz, a senator from Hawaii, and some other folks uh, passed this bill in the Senate to ensure that streaming services such as Netflix, for example, uh, wouldn't you could get the, the emergency messages even if you're just watching a streaming movie. 
one um, more, yes, one more thing too. While I just came yep. into my head, I'm going to forget about it. But um, I was talking about the difference between a radar-based warning and a confirmed tornado warning. I I believe the way they do that in the Gibson Ridge software. Uh, do you have any of that stuff like GR Earth, GR Two? Uh, no, I don't. Okay, so what they have in there is basically a severe thunderstorm warning is yellow, a tornado warning is red, and a confirmed tornado is. You know what? You can make them whatever like colors dark, you want. Yeah, but red, they're example. different yeah. colors. I have my tornado yeah. emergency is black. You know, and and that's a different yeah. color too. But what yeah. they do, I believe, is they just it, it's part of the script of the program that they you know they import the National Weather Service warnings, mm-hmm. and it can just pick up if the word confirmed is in it. Like if it, you know it's a tornado warning and you see the word confirmed in there, there's no other pretty much no other situation in a radar based warning where you're yeah. going to have that. So I don't I don't think it's really rocket science. I think it's really doable and uh yeah. And and I think we can trust people to use that information wisely, you know. I mean, I certainly always look for that and uh it doesn't mean you blow off the the tornado warnings that are based on radar. It just means you you no. you know more, right? Knowledge is power. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I I I'm just saying, you know, obviously we always look into it more. You know, we're meteorologists. We get it. Right. <laughs> but I really just think most people, you see a tornado warning on your phone. Okay, tornado warning. Ha- there are half the people I feel like that yeah. think that means that that's a, that there's a tornado coming for sure. And there are probably half the people that think that, oh, you know, nothing's going to happen as usual or whatever. So it's just, I don't know. It's yeah. tough to, to people. And it's not their fault. I'm not getting on people for not understanding it. It's more our fault than anything. Um, I think there are lots of adjustments to be made um, in both of the areas that, me and you talked about. What do you think? Should we wrap it up, Bob? Is there anything else? <laughs> I think we've hit most of the key points, and um, you know, there's uh, more severe weather ahead, as always. So uh, we'll we'll see what, uh, what what lies ahead. This is an interesting situation this year because this storm track has been very favorable for severe weather early in the season, but. You know, it's an El Nino year. There's a couple, There's a lot of factors, but I, I think at the end of the day, if the storm track is like this, you're going to have a lot of severe weather, right? I would, you know, I'm a little nervous at this point, seeing how chilly and persistently cold it's been in the northwest U.S., you know, uh, because if if that if we keep getting upper troughs that keep the northwest cold, but we get the pushes of warm, moist air, and keep in mind that the Gulf of Mexico and Caribbean have been a, a good bit above average temperature-wise this spring so far. So oh wow! If that keeps the moist air flowing in, and um, we keep getting troughs in the west, yeah, it could be quite an active spring. Well, I guess we would be due for a pretty active severe weather season anyway. It's going to happen. You know, it's one of those things that severe weather happens. You know, sometimes you get a little break yeah. from it, but it's always going to happen. There's nothing we can do. It's not like we can stop tornadoes or severe and weather. Then, yeah. You know, and unfortunately, we're seeing that clumping such that the quiet years are becoming more quiet, and the busiest tornado years are becoming more busy in recent years so let's hope this isn't one of those busy side years that's very interesting all right bob this has been uh, very interesting thanks a lot